If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're doing another Making Of episode. Today, we're talking about the making of Imperium, both classics and Legends, and we're talking to the designers, David Turksey and Nigel Buckle. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Good to be here. Yeah, so glad that you're here. Uh, you guys have gotten a lot of buzz over the last few years. You've designed just some amazing games, games that have done really well in the marketplace. Uh, Voidfall, Nigel just recently uh, uh, was on Kickstarter and did excellent, did really, really well, and then David, you're, you're talked about all the time because it seems like every other game has a solo mode made by you. Only the good ones. Only the good ones. Every, that's right. The bad ones, the, the half the bad ones get, get thrown out. I saw recently you also did the solo mode for rock, paper, scissors, and I don't even know what that means, but I was super impressed by, by that. And I can, we'll talk about that maybe here in just a minute. But before we get into that kind of stuff and talking about Imperium, just give me your backgrounds, how you guys got into game design, all that kind of thing. And, and David, why don't you go first? I'll go first then. Um, I used to be a software engineer back before the dark times. And I got into board gaming on the back end of the university years. Came from, you know, theme of Game of Thrones or Battlestar Galactica and then then got into Eclipse and those sort of things. And then one day somebody showed me Euro games. I'm trying to remember which one was the first, but I don't remember. And then it was, you know, all down or uphill, depending on how you look at it from there. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, the Mihai Vincent, many years ago came to me saying, I was born on the summer holiday. I made a board game. Uh, I was like, sure, can I help? And many years later, that game got published as Redacted. And being as the we were the first internationally published Hungarian game designers, I suddenly met a few people, and amongst those people were the freshly started Mind Clash games, who I quickly recognized that they know something or a lot of things that I don't, and I handed them an acrony. Uh, together, we made almost half a million dollars on Kickstarter six, seven years ago. I don't remember; it was a long time ago, and. Ever since then, the doors have just been opening themselves, and I've been working as a full-time game designer for three, four, three, four years now. And and for the past year or two, I've had the privilege of driving Nigel crazy over a lot of projects. And you know, you'll find out the rest during the rest of the interview. Yeah, very cool. All right, Nigel, what about you? How'd you get in game design? Uh, well, long, long time ago, sort of back in the 70s, 
so yeah, a very long time ago. I was, you know, young and whatever, and we had lots of time and no money. And I kind of, we played family games and stuff until I, it was a club at school where some people played chess and some people played war games. So I kind of got into playing those and then moving from that into kind of tabletop gaming, I guess you'd probably call it, and did that and then discovered collectible card games, played those, and all the way through I would always tweak, especially the tabletop war gaming, but um, tweak rules, house rules, you know, got a game because obviously the internet didn't exist. You just bought something either based on the cover or the back or the hope that the designer knew what they were doing. And then, you know, if you didn't like it, you had to either give up on it, sell it secondhand to someone if you can find someone or um, tweak the rules. So I guess my game design just came from rather than tweaking someone else's, I, you know, took the extra step and started doing my own thing really. Um, So that's where it started. Um, And unlike David, not really having contacts, not really talking to other people that did it. You know, you can design something in a vacuum, but getting it published is quite difficult. So, um, yeah, I was lots and lots of designs, you know, that me and my friends thought were quite good, but obviously, you know, take it a bit wider and perhaps they're not so good. Um, So that's where it started. Um, I think my main, my biggest launch pad was, as David said, Omega Centauri, which was a kind of, Euro style space 4x um, that um, again that went through some interesting stumbling blocks before it finally got published in 2014 um, but that flew under pretty much everyone's radar apart from David's uh, you might mention that in a bit um, but then while I before I was working on that I was also working on I played in. I played Dominion. Thought that was just an amazing mechanism, because obviously I come from collectible card games where you build a deck and then play it, and this was you build the deck while you're playing. It was just like genius. So I was, you know, trying to do my own spin on that, and that took quite a while. I went through lots of iterations, but eventually um, I pitched. I tried pitching it various places without success, but then. Um, a little company called NSKN um, were quite excited about it. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't that they weren't particularly looking for submissions, so they had a pretty full program. So they it was on the back burner for them for quite a while. But then when it bubbled up to the top is when David got involved um, because they wanted him to help develop it. Very cool. Let's um let's pause right there. I want to get into like the history of Imperium. In just a minute and get into all those like juicy details but real quick before we kind of switch gears into that how many games have you and david worked on as far as the public knows these two yes <laughs> okay but there's other ones as well and so um tell me kind of how you guys got to know each other like tell me about your process of working together do you live close to each other are you hanging out at you know going to each other's house or like tell me just your your process uh well we've we both David used to live in the UK and he used to live um, near London and I'm based in South London. We both went to the same games club, although we didn't necessarily intersect because London's quite big and this games club had lots of venues, but um, they ran a convention. And about that time, David had his first 
think his first ball game published redacted and Omega Centauri was out and it was like, hey, there's two people that are designers, both of this convention. You know, we kind of met each other, swapped games. Um, yeah, we got to know each other more sort of like through that method, really. Um, then David moved on to wonderful things with an acronym and whatever. And um, the next time our paths intersected was, as I said, with um, NSKN and Imperium. At, at which point I, I immediately recognized Nigel's name saying, wait a minute, this was the guy who designed Omega Centauri. And then, you know, things kind of took a speed up turn from there. So, yeah, we certainly met in person. When Dave was in the UK, we would meet up. Um, he's not in the UK anymore now. I live in the Netherlands. Meeting up's slightly more tricky, but hey, you know, we can do stuff on the internet. Um, and as for how we collaborate, um, we work together, I think, really well because we're not particularly alike. Um, there's some overlap in our game tastes, but it's not totally aligned. Davis game collection probably wouldn't look much like mine. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of someone that I like to iterate and think about stuff. And David gets quite animated and excited and kind of wants to do something almost straight away. So it's, we're kind of not quite, not quite either ends of the spectrum, but certainly, um, You know, we can we pull and push each other quite well, I think. And both of us are not so egotistical that oh, my idea is right. Um, we're happy to listen to each other. And what we end up with is somewhere between the two of us. And that seems to work quite well. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes a lot of sense to have a really good co-designer that is not the same as you, that can see things from different angles and that kind of thing. All right, so let's now shift gears and talk about kind of the beginning, the early stages of Imperium. And so you were talking about how it was a different game and then this publisher was interested in it, but then wasn't going to work out. So kind of pick it up where you left off and let's, you know, tell us, tell us about how the game came to be. So the game I ended up pitching to NSKN they picked up was there was six, it was, a, it was the heart of what Imperium is now where a tableau building deck builder with six civilizations and time is mapped by you start as a, a barbarian state with one set of cards and then as you go through the game you add more cards to your from your own personal deck so that's how we get the theme in so that's how the romans are not the same as the persians because it's not just what you buy from the middle of the market and the 10 cards you start with you've got an own personal deck so we can bring the history in that way eventually you go through that deck you hit the unique card, which we now call the accession card, that turn, flips you from being a barbarian to an empire. At that point, half your deck stops working because they're barbarian cards, but instead you can use the powerful empire cards. So that's that's pretty much the game as pitched to NSKN. So kind of a sort of civilization, deck builder, tableau builder, but very, very asymmetric. And, you know, I sent them a prototype. They really liked it. Um, but they felt that, you know, it, they wanted to put it on Kickstarter as well, but it needed, you know, a little bit more of everything, really, which is where David came in. And what year was this? Uh, well, I pitched it to NS, I pitched it to NSK, I think in 2013. 
I think it was about 2014 when they signed it. And correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, was it 2016 or 2017? I can't remember when I, it was. I pitched to them Dice Settlers in 14 and 15, and it came out in seven. It went on Kickstarter on 17. And I went full-time in 18, and the second project I had at NSKM was yours. So the first one was Teotihuacan, this little unknown game. So yeah, 2017 then, something like that. Yeah. Gotcha. So several years before, it was actually on people's tables. And that's one thing I really want listeners of the show to understand, because a lot of them are, are just getting into game design. They're just trying to figure out, okay, how do I get my games published or get them on Kickstarter? And they don't understand that it, it's a long process, that it typically takes several years from pitching a game until it actually delivers and, and people can buy it in a store. And so tell me about any of the kind of other things going on early on before it, it kind of became what it is now. Well, I think before even David was involved, when I first had the original idea, um, I didn't have tableau building at all. There was a draft and then deck building. And for the, the group I played with, it was absolutely fine. Everyone thought it was great. We all loved it. But then when I, you know, obviously it's not a good idea just to do it in an echo chamber. So I took it to other people and it just fell massively flat because the problem with the draft is you've got to know what you're doing to draft but how do you learn the game if you don't know what you're doing so there's kind of it was a chicken and egg couldn't get started really i mean there was enough of what they did see in it to bits they liked but the game as it stood was just you know never going to work so then it kind of got shelved i looked at other bits and pieces and then i played another game called core worlds that's got this idea of again it's another deck builder but you place cards out so you build a tableau as well. And it was like, ah, oh, that's a really good idea. So I went back to the drawing board, reworked Imperium to include the tableau. And that's when it got to the point where, yeah, people beyond my long-suffering playtesters um, could sort of see the merit and liked it and said, yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, I, you know, the classic thing is, well, would you buy it? And it would be like, not looking like that, I wouldn't. But if it had nice art and stuff, I probably I might think about it. So then, at that point, was when you know I then sort of like look around to see can I try and convince a publisher to publish it. And of course, the problem you've got there is publishers, yes, they take risks all the time. But publishing a game is you know quite a high risky venture. They want to minimise the risk as much as possible. And one big risk is if it's an unknown designer how many people were going to want to, you know, buy that game? Will it be any good? It's lots of question marks. Um, NSKN, fortunately, just were, they were quite interested in the pitch and the, you know, the theme and everything. They said, we'll send us it, we'll try it, we'll let you know. And fortunately, they did try it and they liked it. And yeah, so that, that's kind of where it started, really. Gotcha. And so... All right, what, what happened next? Like, is the next stage when, when David came in or, or what happened? Well, then, obviously, there's quite a long time waiting for that. And they had a project manager, but he was saying, look, we're, you know, we're not going to get this in our production queue for ages. We're probably going to go on Kickstarter. So what you've given us is great, but we want some more. Probably going to need stretch goals or expansions. Go work on some more nations. So that meant me go away, you know, do a bit more research, look at the ancient history, find some more nations, find some more ideas. So I was working on that in the background while, you know, waiting for it to trundle along their 
production queue. Cool. How many how many nations did you have at, at first? Well, I had six original at the very beginning, and I think by the time David was along, there was probably about sort of eight. I think maybe. I think if I remember correctly, there were eight, and like like six or seven of them were like good enough at that point, and then we were like tightening it up. Yeah. Gotcha. And what? Like, what made you choose those certain ones? Like, which nations were, they don't necessarily have to name all, but like, what, what drew you to those as opposed to others? Yeah, the original nations were uh, based on my knowledge of history. So it was, you know, the classic Mediterranean civilization. So I had Rome, I had the Persian Empire, I had Greece, I had um, the Carthage. So it was that, it was that, that area of, of the world in, 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 the, in the ancient civilization to begin with. So that's where I started. But obviously with more nations, we kind of, you know, start to extend it, um, you know, look at other, you know, other nations, you know, around the same sort of time period really, but moving out from the Mediterranean. So that's, that's where it started. Gotcha. And when did the legends part come about? Was that also around the same time or was that something much later? No, no. Well, because what happened was um, I had Atlantis um, with NSKN um, because that had the unique um, take that you start as an empire and all the others didn't do that. So it was like a, a unique take. So, and it had to be because of the timeline. It, so this, this had to be a, a nation that happened before Egypt. There wasn't really one that fitted, so we went with the mythical Atlantis. So that was the only mythical nation from, you know, back for the Kickstarter. But then when the Kickstarter kind of stumbled, um, that's where David stepped in and worked his magic and um, found another publisher, which was Osprey. And um, with Osprey, we went to Osprey with the game, with the nations that we developed with NSKN and with all the art, which was amazing. That was really good of them. Um, and Osprey loved the game, loved the art, wanted to use the same artist, which was great as well. Um, but they, the number of nations we'd done was too big for them to do, do one of their standard boxes. So they said, well, well, let's do two boxes. We're like, what, the game and the expansion? No, no, let's just do two boxes at the same time. Okay, then. So then there was quite a lot of back and forth about which nation should go in which box. And they hit on the idea of doing classics for a classical civilization and then legends because we've got Atlantis and we put the other things in there. Um, but then when we work on it, it's like, well, there's only one legend at the moment. So perhaps we need some more civilizations, which is where we came up with the Arthurians and the Utopians. But then, you know, we had to adjust and, Adding some more nations, so we filled them all, filled out, ended up with eight in each, and moved some, moved a couple around. So yeah, that's how it ended up being as big as it was. That wasn't, it was never planned right from the start to have, have that number of nations. Yeah, very cool. Although from a personal experience, one one thing I've learned is that it's actually better that way because if I start off with this massive idea of having all these nations in this. Uh, regard it's almost overwhelming it's almost too much and so it's better to start off with just a handful and then it kind of slowly work its way up absolutely david switching over to you tell me about like when you first encountered the game like tell me how kind of that happened and what your first 
initial you know thoughts were and then what you were working on there in the beginning i i i'll, I'll be extremely edgy and controversial here so i unlike nigel don't like deck builders i they are pure engine builders usually and and it took me years to understand why I don't like pure engine builders. At the time, all I knew was like, eh, I don't like them. And so when I saw Imperium on the catalog of, of NSKN's development schedule, I was like, ooh, this is Nigel. I want it. I want it. Ooh, this is asymmetric. This is going to be great. I printed that out the decks and I played it. And I was like, the rules sound genius. The concept of, of, having a Roman nation deck against a South nation deck and the market cars to buy. This sounds great. I don't like it. Why not? And, 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 and I did what I, I, what I do all the time. I grumped and, and, and I moaned and I said, yeah, but why can't it, ha why, why can't I have it my way? And luckily, Niger is a nice enough person that instead of telling me who's this young whippersnapper bugger off, he said, why? What, what do you want to do? And then we discussed. And uh, fundamentally, my biggest problem was uh, uh, not with its deck builderness. My biggest problem was that it was too smart for a deck builder. And while most average deck builders at least were mostly harmless and 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 boring and over quickly this required me to think which i like but then it became my opponent's turn and then i was like yeah but now i don't care and i was like i want to know what they're doing give me a motivation to to to, to understand what their strategy is and out of that conversation grew two things the uh, if you play the game, you're familiar with the idea. That at the end of your turn, you place a, a token on the market. First of all, when I started, the market was I remember I recall a random shuffle cards, deal five cards in the river, whichever is bought, slide and refill or something to that effect, which was also I think Persia already existed and but didn't quite have the player power as it did today. And it's like, oh, but none of the tributaries came out. Now I now I'm mad. So like the game was super thinky and super interesting, and the asymmetry felt meaningful, but the randomness got in my way. And and when it was the other guy's turn, I I, I wasn't particularly caring about what they're doing. I I didn't need to gauge their 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 strategy. So for the first month or so all i did was trying to throw again this was what four years ago so even though my intentions were best but looking back today uh, looking back at that today i would call myself a well-meaning amateur so 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 i didn't have a stroke of genius and solved all the problems in five minutes i kept throwing terrible ideas at nigel and nigel being the wonderful chap he is kept patiently explaining to me why that goes against everything he's doing until we found the combination that solved the problems I was having while not going against everything Nigel was doing. And that was, A, at the end of your turn, you affect, you, you, you don't just refill the market, but you specifically affect 
the value of the cards before it's the other player's turn. And then combine this with Nigel already had an exile mechanism where you can just deny a card from the market to somebody else. I was like, so I can raise the value of a card, but uh, and then you can't deny that card to me, but I've just raised the value of the card, therefore you might as well buy it. And suddenly, where the moment when I need to put down that token on the market, I need to look and understand what you're doing and say, if I were you, I would buy that card. And and that made me look up. Sure, it's not a super tactical, super interactive, it's still a heavy deck builder, but at least now I care what you're doing. And then continuing the changes on the market, uh, we figured out uh, a setup where at the beginning of the game, there's at least one uh, card guaranteed of three of the four major types, which meant that there was no, oh, this strategy got stuck because of a random card or so. So some of my main problems with card draw driven uh, uh, games started to go away. And then, of course, everybody wanted me on the project saying, we need a solo mode for this. And and Nigel was just saying, no, this uh, I have this practice mode where you can just play and get this many points and toss those cards and whatnot, but you can't make a real solo mode for it because you can't make the choices on the cards. And you said, challenge accepted, huh? And I said, well, no, don't even try to make those cho- choices. Abstract them out. I don't care what you do on one particular card. What I care is what your rough output of your turn is and how does the rough output of a Roman player differ from the rough output of a Persian player. And and I don't even remember how we got to it, but eventually we landed on this idea of making a chart that whenever that uh, the bot plays x number of cards and uh, and each card is checked against this chart and the highest member of that chart uh decides what happens so so if, if this card hits the first row then we do what's in the first row if this card only is the third row we do that that's and every card would hit one of these rows and then Nigel was like super skeptical and then thought a lot about it and then went and then built it and then he came back to me and said this is nice but the whole point of the game is that uh, your playstyle changes halfway through the game when you hit Empire, and that your playstyle changes depending on who you're playing against. So me, the naive, enthusiastic solo designer, thought, hey, I made a chart, I'm done. And here comes Nigel back to me saying, and back then we only had six or seven nations, we need 14 of them, because we need two for every nation instead of just the one I wanted. And luckily, again, Nigel being the amazing chap he is, he went and playtested all those 14 charts. And this around the story is when this, uh, the Kickstarter hit, which failed through no, re- no fault of almost anyone involved. It was a uh, wrong, wrong time to run a Kickstarter for the company, which was going through some changes, which is how it became Board and Dice, what is today. Uh, marketing beats were missed. The, the product offering wasn't perfect. And... Andre and the team being the wonderful gentlemen they are, they were like, we made a mistake. You shouldn't be punished. Here is your license back immediately. And uh, here is the 70-something arts we've already paid for. And as Nigel says, I'm a networker. I, I know people and I talk to people and I want people to want to talk to me. So I made some calls. And in two weeks, we had two pitching meetings. And within another two weeks, the game was sold to Osprey, who said, we love the art and we got to buy some more. And then uh, somewhere along this way, I think 
still towards the tail end of the board and dice, uh, the NSCAM period, I got the itch. I was like, I, I was slowly moving from a developer hat to the, I'm excited about this designer hat. And, you know, the, the more the game became not a smart deck builder, but uh, my kind of heavy strategy. And, uh, and, and I remember walking home from a, uh, a, a team meeting with one of my publishers, don't remember which one, and typing on my phone saying, hey, Nigel, how about we make a civilization where uh, they, don't, uh, they don't become empire? How about we make a civilization where, uh, where they don't have a nation deck and every time they reshuffle, they get an unrest instead? And, 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 and how about the other ones? They don't, and, and it just became a, a system an envelope to push. And for some strange reason, Nigel again didn't say bugger off. He said, hold my beer or hold my coffee or whatever he was drinking. And thus we started creating weirder and weirder mechanical spins, all inspired by Nigel's love of history and the theme to, ooh, I've read this cool thing about the Mauryan Empire, watch me implement this differently than I did the other ones. And basically I got to the point where I started on the project as a paid developer to improve it a little bit. And by the time we finished, it became one of my favorites. So when the game landed, I think I played it more times for fun than since any of my other published games, which is quite saying something. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, I want to circle back and chat more about the solo mode and then also the, the system that you guys use to come up with new nations. But first, Nigel, let's uh, let's do like a quick overview as the game is right now. Like if you were going to do an elevator pitch for it, you know, people listening to the show maybe haven't played Imperium, maybe hadn't heard of it. Give me like the, the two-minute quick elevator pitch for the game. Like if you were going to approach a publisher right now as the game stands, what would you say? How would you sell it? What are the hooks? Right, so it's a very, very asymmetric um, deck building tableau game where you s- typically start as a barbarian state and through the play of the game, which typically lasts 12, 14, depends on the nation turns, um, you move from being a barbarian to being an empire. At the point that flip happens, half of your deck becomes unusable, but instead you get access to more powerful cards. So you've got an inbuilt personal deck that sets the you know the the overarching feel of that particular nation, at least how we interpret them, looking through the lens of history. But there's also a centralized market of general technology and regions and discoveries and things. So ensuring that not it's not just every game's the same because you're playing with the same set of twenty odd cards. There'd be in the, and you're not just looking for the highest card or the best card every, you know, just buy the best card you can, the most one you're making a fold. It's more which strategy you're following, which tools pop up in the market that supplement that, and then it's identifying those to include in it. So, yeah, the game's got quite a lot of replayability because you've got to learn, you've got to learn each nation. And then when you're playing against the other people, um, yes, you're doing your own thing, but there's different end game triggers and that's within the player agency for when that happens. And you have to work out how many points you're getting with your strategy. Do you 
and what the other person's doing and adapt your play to what they're doing. And also, as David said earlier, you um, sweeten the market with points and you have to try and obviously not put that where your opponent on the card you think your opponent wants because then you're helping them more than you're helping yourself. Yeah, and one of the things I love about this game and then some several other games like it is that tension of when do I switch? When do I change my strategy? Do I do it on this turn? Do I wait another turn? Small World does this really well. Dominion actually does it really well. Was that was that idea inspired by Dominion and kind of knowing that tension? Yeah, I think so. And also the other point, I wanted to have this idea that, you know, at some point your kingdom gets to the point that, you know, it stops being a kingdom and starts becoming an empire. And what does that mean? So, and then that's where the unrest comes in as well. So if you're looking, if you take a, if you step back and look at the history of an empire, you know, the birth of the empire, you know, where it came from, what, what his characteristics are, you know, what, what was his strengths, what, what, you know, what was his reasons for existing and how it dealt with the internal as well as the external tensions, which is what we include with the unrest. So, you know, when you get a new idea and you introduce it, it doesn't necessarily all get taken up smoothly. Parts of the population resist it. People don't like it. So, you know, that's why we've got the unrest in the game as well. It's not just to, you know, give players a a strategic challenge. It's there also to model, you know, the sort of thing that, you know, rulers of a a civilization would struggle with. You know, it's never it's not never quite plain sailing, and that's the other reason why I used a deck builder for a civilization game, because you know typically these civilization games put you as you know the, the ruler with the choices of you know where you go and what you do and that sort of thing. And I felt in it, probably being the ruler of something like that is yes, you're very powerful, but you can't do everything all the time, and the deck. Building mechanism works quite well, and your you know your limit is what cards you've got in your hand. And the way the game works is, you know, you want to get rid of them all and draw a new hand, so you can keep going through your deck to get the cards there. But at the same time, if you want to build up a combo, you might want to hang on to a card. So it kind of you've got that tension of you know, what, do I wait? Do I do I not wait? Do I keep it? Do I not keep it? So it was all sort of tied up with you know trying to give you that feel really. Yeah, and I love how thematic it is. If you think about Dominion, it's not super thematic to like all of a sudden switch up your strategy and start getting points. It's, it's really just because you want to win. But in your game, it actually makes sense that there is a time when a kingdom would start to become an empire and things would change and you would have to switch up your strategies and would create more unrest. It makes sense. And I think that's a really cool uh, aspect of your game because it, it does make sense. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let's switch over and let's talk about the different types of cards. You have a lot of different kinds of cards. Were they all in there from the beginning or, or were there some that you had to split or some you had to cut out? Tell me about that, Nigel. Well, we very early on, I mean, I didn't I didn't even have a market. What I had, this was before as a tableau, I had a discovery deck that you went through, like, almost like a push-your-luck mechanic to find things. Um, but when I moved to a tableau, that didn't really work, so I had to go. And I think for game designers, I think you have to, one bit of advice I'd say is, even if you really, really like a mechanism and it's kind of like you're really proud of it, and sometimes you just have to take a step back and acknowledge that it doesn't fit this particular game and throw it away and do it different. So once I moved to the idea of a tableau, which means some of your combinations you play out and not have to keep them in your hand, 
So it's like, well, what would you play out? What would be what would be a card that keeps coming round compared with one that you put on the table? Well, you put on the table regions because you know I'm then exploiting that region. That region is now strategically important for my empire, so that's on the table generating me resources or whatever and then the other thing would be my technology so if i've invented um you know writing or i've invented agriculture or whatever it might be then that goes into play on the table and then is a permanent change to the game whereas something like an idea or a strategy like you know invasion well that's more of a card that when it comes round you can do an invasion and then it's back in your deck and you've got to come round again so that, that was the idea between, you know, cards that sit out on the table as a pen and cards that you just play and keep going. And then the, the other thing I need to bring in was what do you do with cards you don't want in your deck anymore? Obviously, lots of deck builders have a trash pile. You throw them out. It was like, yeah, it doesn't but do you, you have a history. So we turn, you have a personal trash pile called your history. So cards that, you know, and they're no longer relevant. You know, you, they go into your history. And then we try to put all the leaders to do that. So a leader, you know, in the time scale of Imperium comes up, do their thing, and then they shuffle off the history. So, again, kind of built that idea up, that you know, another mechanism that fits with the theme, really. Yeah, and let's talk about how you power these cards, how you use these cards. Let's talk about the resources if I remember right, you have uh, materials, population, and then progress. So, uh, am I rem- remembering that right as the three resources? Yeah. So to begin with, I just had materials and population. So materials just being, you know, the building blocks, stuff, money, bricks, timber, just generically called resources, which then became materials and population. And typically the to get the land cards you spend population and to get the other cards you spend materials and sometimes you spend a combination of them so that was the idea of two types of resources materials and population and then the way you got them was through one card called the prosperity card but you action your regions either for their resources which then there's a special icon on them showing how rich they are. That's how many resources they generate. Or else you just, you know, I've got X, I've got five regions, I get five population. It doesn't matter whether the region's particularly rich or particularly poor. It's just, you know, people I can move from, you know, the country to put in my army or my town or whatever it is that I'm building up. So that so that was the two I had. And then when David came on board and it was the idea of, well, let's have a wild resource so that, you know, something else we can do. And then, okay, well, let's, but let's give that, let's make it worth victory points. One, so there's a point to putting it out on the market to, you know, make the cars more attractive to your opponent, give them a victory point. But rather than just, it's a victory point, that's pretty boring. Let's have it worth, you can convert it to the, the two types of resources you use if you get yourself in a, in a bind and you haven't got the right thing, well, you can spend the victory points you've been collecting to get them. So again, it was a kind of dig you out, dig you out of a hole that you put yourself in. Yeah. And I like the idea of a civilization sometimes having to spend progress to do something else, right? Which is exactly what happens in the real world. There's all sorts of times where a civilization will have to go backwards for whatever yeah. reason um, and, or choose to, not necessarily have to, but uh, I think it's super thematic. 
as well. All right, David, let's go back and talk about your your system for coming up with new nations. Earlier, you were talking about how you would just kind of come up with the ideas and throw them at Nigel and see what he thought and, and he, if he would throw them back. But tell me kind of the process you now have. I assume it's a little bit more organized, a little bit more systematized. Maybe not. Maybe you're still just sending random emails going, hey, what if we do this? But tell me about what your, your process is. Okay. Um, so if we were working on some hypothetical future Imperium deck and we were we would be forced to come up with a pattern to do it a little bit better, then I like to see systems everywhere. And and whereas Nigel is more like uh, oh this just made sense to me. And then and then I try to analyze it and find the system that he created naturally. And by the time we were finished with all the 16 existing civilizations, there was definitely a system to them. There were simpler ones that just, you know, bought cards, uh, played glory a few times, got to empire, bought a few more cards, done. And there were other ones that worked like that, but with a twist. So the Olmecs had uh, uh, pinned utility cards and had to manage masks. The Greeks had a lot of cities to cycle their decks. The uh, various fantasy, uh, the, the not real nations all had their thing to uh, manage. And as, 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 a, as a designer pretty much in love with this idea, I like to look at this like a, like a chart, like a, you know the, the crazy person explaining a conspiracy theory on the wall kind of thing. And it's like, if, if we can do this and if we can do that, then why can't we also do that third thing that's between them? And there are many ways to come up with a new deck for Imperium. None of them are easy, but either you can go thematically saying, okay, so the game's timeline framework works very well between 3000 BC and 1000 AD. Who's a cool civilization in there that we haven't done yet? And what defines them? And how would we explain that with the game's mechanism? The second one is the mechanical one, is, oh, we had the Olmecs do this and the Arthurians do that, so can we have a nation that does this and that, and what sort of theme would that describe? And then either one of us can have either one of the type of the ideas, and then we have our private little Slack equivalent where we discuss things and there are Excel spreadsheets about everything. I mean, if we were to sit down and, and design more decks, that's definitely how we would do it. So I tend to come that this Imperium um, civilizations more from the thematic side of it. So I need to research the civilization a bit and find out, you know, what were they most remembered for? What, what, you know, so like if you said, you know, schoolboy or whatever, Rome, Rome and their empire, what would you remember them for? You know, and, you know, what what have the Romans ever done for us? Or whatever it is, you see, so you, you kind of come down with a bullet list of things and some of them might be too nebulous or difficult to turn into a particular card or a mechanism and some might be easy to fit. So, for example, using Rome, for example, the gladiators and the and the um, glad, gladiator combat. So, how would you? How do I represent that in Imperium? Well, we've got a card called Bread and Circuses that helps you with unrest, because that's what the uh, what the um, emperors would do. They put on spectacle 
for the masses to distract them. Heck, can't think of anybody that might do that modern day, but, you know. Anyway, so that's what the card does. It lets you return unrest. The downside to it is you've got to keep discarding cards, so you've got less, you know, you're having to put effort into keeping these things on, distracting you from other things you might be doing. So there's an example of how, you know, you find something that the civilization's notable for and you tie it to a mechanism that fits that also makes the the deck interesting. So it's a kind of iterative, for me anyway, it's an iterative idea. I list all the things about the civilization um, and then try to tie some overarching mechanism that gives it a bit of direction and then drill down to individual cards and do they fit or don't they fit. And then, of course, because we've now got a whole raft of common cards and 16 nations, you know, if I'm doing a writing system, will I go back and look at the other civilizations that we've done that in and make sure it follows the same method so we don't create a card called one thing that does something completely different to the other cards around that type of thing. So, yeah, that's kind of how we do it. Yeah, and do you use that same list when you're coming up with player powers? Is that kind of where you draw from to come up with like how players are going to be differentiated in there? Yeah, exactly. And and, and the, the I mean the player power for the for the civilization is typically either reinforces the central mechanism or the way it ticks, or there was something about the civilization that we couldn't quite fit on a card, so it needed to be the power to you know give that same sort of idea. So for Persia, for instance, definitely, you know, the Persian Empire had lots and lots of vassal states. So it was so massive, it wasn't just one ruler ruling everything and micromanaging the whole thing. Impossible. Instead, set up, you know, puppet kings that pay tribute to you. So the tributaries. So we needed to build into Persia a way of them getting the tributaries beyond just waiting for the conquer card to keep coming around. Why they got a power that lets them do that? Is that that kind of thing? Right, and tell me about the process of like balancing these different nations and different player powers and the different cards that are asymmetrical. Well, I think now we've probably got more of a formula on the spreadsheet. But back before I was that organised, the way I was doing it before David was just lots and lots of playing it. Um, but then when I had a solo mode that's quite effective, that's quite a good um, benchmark for testing. So I can, you know, I know how well Persia does against the Rome bot. I've got the brand new Olmex. Well, I'll play them against the Rome bot and see, you know, what their point spread is, how quick they become an empire, how, you know, can they, do they fall behind, what they get stuck on. So without inflicting you know, on, a, on a group of players, something that doesn't work, I do all that. It doesn't work stuff. Playing myself with the bot, that's how I do it anyway. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And something I've found success with recently as well is is designing that kind of, here's the core uh, opponent, the AI, and then let me play all these other factions against that one, and then that'll kind of give me a baseline for what I, I need to maybe change or whatever. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, David, continuing to talk about the solo mode, have things changed? So you mentioned the charts earlier. Have, have things changed over time as you've kind of developed and, and done different things? Like, tell me about the solo mode as it stands now. No, 
because because I believe that the solo mode, whether my game or somebody else's, has one and one job only. That is to let the players playing alone like the game for the same reason. I like playing the game with two or three players. Therefore, I always start the solo mode as the very last thing of game development. Like, sure, I might keep an eye on it saying, hey, don't design this mechanism in because it'll completely screw up the solo mode. But mostly it's get the game as good as it can be and then figure out the solo mode that gives back as many of its goodness as possible. And I I find it funny that that obviously because of my wide repertoire of solo modes, everybody assumes that what happened here is that I came in and I triumphantly designed the amazing solo mode, whereas actually I believe Nigel spent at least a magnitude more time on the solo mode than I did. It's 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 more of a case of I was I was trying to put a method to the madness, whereas Nigel was just working through the madness and coming out successfully on the other end. So the the, the story of the solo mode is a lot less epic as one would imagine based on the size and the flexibility of the solo mode. It was more like a we back and forth some iterations and then Nigel said, I like it. And then he, he went and iterated it over all the civilizations. And I was happy because I am, as ironic as that sounds, I don't actually like playing solo modes. My brain can't handle sitting in silence and not talking to anybody about it. So the fact that Nigel likes sitting in silence and thinking about things makes us an even greater pair. Yeah, that makes you a really good team. Now, do you have any like general advice for people that are designing solo modes? Just kind of, you know, overview advice for that? Yeah, design a better game. <laughs> okay, gotcha. That's it. The, 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 the first requirement of a great solo mode is a great game. A mediocre game will have a less than mediocre solo mode because, because we're not making the game better. We're making the game come back to the one player. So that's it. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. All right, let's uh, let's kind of wrap up talking about Imperium, and then uh, just spend a couple minutes talking about other projects and different things that you guys have worked on uh, since. So, Nigel, tell me kind of how things rounded out with Imperium, like some of the last stages. I, I talked to Matt Leacock a, a while back, and he said, "Yeah, when you're about ninety percent done, you realize you've got about ninety percent left to do." And so, tell me about that second ninety percent of the development process and just tweaking the game and, and just trying to make it as good and fun as possible there in the, the last stages? Well, I think the last work right at the end that we were doing was one working with Osprey over how they wanted the the card text laid out and the mix of icon and text and to fit with how they their vision for the game. So there was a bit of back and forth on that. Um, and the other, the other area where... Um, pleasantly we got involved was working with the artist so it wasn't just the artist just didn't get given a list of cards and went away and drew stuff it was more we we would give a bit of direction to you know the historical context for this card and you know here's some you know almost, almost like it wasn't quite a mood ball but certainly here's some links where you can go look at national dress or these are the weapons they had or, you know, that kind of stuff. Or these are sort of buildings this civilization had so you don't get, you know, 
inappropriate stuff drawn. So that, um, and, and so we spent quite a lot of time working with the Miko, um, giving him, you know, the, the big picture for him to then go away and, you know, work his own magic. And to be fair, it wasn't, you know, we didn't describe in detail how to draw everything. He, he also, you know, introduced his own ideas and his own little Easter eggs into it as well. So it was definitely a, a collaborative process. Um, David probably had more direct contact with him than me, I think, but that's because they share a common language. No, no, we don't. The you don't, you don't. only common language we share is the language of the completely crazy people. Right. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. All right. And so let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about since Imperium. And like we said earlier, this, this is several years ago that y'all were working on this and come up with ideas and, th and things like that. And so you've done several projects since we mentioned Voidfall and it you know has done really well on Kickstarter recently. What are some of the, the takeaways? What are some of the ideas, the cool little things, the things you learned while designing this game that you were then able to maybe take on into future projects, whether they've come out or not? We don't have to get into details. I know you guys are working on a bunch of stuff you can't talk about, uh, but what are some of the things you, you took away? You're like, oh, this is really cool. Ways that you grew as designers. And David, let's, let's start with you. Ooh. I don't know, because I work on one bagazillion projects at any given time, and it's always to me, I'm I, I am the insane puppet master cackling behind the 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 scenes, and I learn from all of them a lot of things, and then I just run to the other guy and teach him what I just learned from the first guy, and then I act very, very smug and smart about it. But and then learn something from that guy and run back to the first and vice versa. <laughs> to me, uh, like working with Nigel, the, 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 the biggest thing I've learned recently was not from Imperium, but that was from Voidfall, that we started from a game I really liked. We made a lot of improvements that I really believed in. Then we had a good game that we improved. And then when we thought we were done, we then since made the game twice as good at least three times. So some games are hinging on a single idea and that's fine, but some games are just marvels of engineering, if you will, or and whether that be narrative engineering or, or, or user experience engineering or design system engineering, but, but there is always, there's always higher. And for me that uh, like seven years ago, I was designing games on a whim. And then after I dared criticize Teotihuacan during development and somehow ended up making it better, I realized I should dare to criticize everything, including my own stuff. From there, I got to today where I know that there is no such thing as perfect. There is such a thing as this is as good as we can get it with our current setup and our current resources. And when, when, when we're given a different kind of unlimited room to play, and I say because Voidfall and Imperium are unlimited in completely different ways, then truly our own ambition and, and the sky is the limit. And at this point, my biggest problem is that I can't settle because I've, I've, I've tasted and, and Nigel helped me taste this 
this this rise of of even greaterness and 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 I worry how will I ever finish any other project when they don't get as much better as these ones did. Wow, yeah, that's excellent, Nigel. What about you? Um, I think what was some of this, of course, is David and I not even being in the same country, but definitely need to be super organised with spreadsheets and things so that you're both looking at the same version because you can imagine the chaos if I'm looking at version 2.1.3 and Dave's talking about 2.1.4 and I'm getting completely confused because, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. Don't you remember? So, yeah, it, to collaborate, the, the, the heart of collaboration is communication and when you're and when you're doing a game system, obviously the detail is very, very important because, yeah, and especially, especially with a complicated, complex game where things interlock, if you change one bit, it obviously has implications elsewhere as well. So I think that's my, my, my takeaway is make sure you're all up to speed with where, where you are with things. And also you, I think recognising the other person's strengths and, you know, playing towards those rather than against them. So Dave is very good now with he'd come up with two or three great ideas that he's ready to write down, you know, sharpies on a card and start playing, but he knows that's just not going to work for me. I've got to think about it, internalize it, look at the different angles of it. And I learned that instead of being frustrated with that and saying, come on, hurry up, make it more of an asset. And, and, uh, uh, like, because of because of Nigel's thoughtfulness, I've started making less mistakes. Because if I can't back it up to the settledness of Nigel's preference, then it won't fly. But if I do take effort to think it through and 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 lay it all out on the table for Nigel to absorb, then by definition it'll get more thought through and better. So, you know, we're we're being very good influence on both of us, on each other. Yep. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate y'all joining me here on the show. Good luck with uh, any hypothetical future editions of Imperium that may or may not be uh, in the works and all the other games I know you guys are are working on and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, you know, many more projects to come. Feel free to have either or both of us back anytime when you want to ask about them. Definitely. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?